0: Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Starting this week, we're launching a new show on the Ringer Dish feed, recapping the return of Survivor for its special 40th season. This season features 20 previous winners of Survivor competing for $2 million, the largest cash prize in reality TV show history. Riley McAtee and a rotating guest from The Ringer staff will recap every Thursday. So make sure you subscribe to The Ringer Dish feed for shows like Jam Session, Tea Time, and the new Survivor Recap Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I need support staff
1: to clear the room.
0: Stand up and walk, now. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at theringer.com. And joining me in the studio, are we human or are we Evan Rachel Wood? It's Andy Greenwald! Oh, that was a good one. Thanks, man. I've been slipping. You know, but that references
2: music, which is something that exists.
0: <laughs> so I feel like that was some
2: co-branding for your other podcast. One of podcasts. your favorite
0: exclusive Spotify podcasts. You can also listen to Music Exist for free on Spotify. And Great. if you don't know what that is, that's a podcast that I am doing mm-hmm. with Chuck Klosterman. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a 15-episode podcast uh, about how we think about, how, talking about how we think about music is the tagline. What's Spotify though? I'm not familiar. It's a it's it's a great, great service. You great. Should look into it. <laughs> I might look into it. Yeah. Hey guys. Greenwald's here. Today on the watch, we're gonna talk a little bit about Westworld. Uh, and then in the second half of the show, a summit unlike any we've seen since Frost Nixon. Greenwald Caraba. Two. Yeah. Well, nine actually. So wait, uh, I'm sure you did you and you talk to Chris Cropper from Dashboard Confessional.
2: Yes. And and, and we'll we'll set it up closer to the end of this first segment. Okay. But basically, yeah, this is this is someone who I've now known for almost nineteen years. Uh-huh. Who I basically wrote a book about. Um literally. Yeah. And
0: uh, Nothing feels good, still available on Amazon.com and, and fine booksellers. And
2: independent bookshops, sure. of course. I'm sure. God, you've you've changed since you went corporate, man. No, but
0: I bet like do you do you ever check in bookstores to see if it's there?
2: Yeah, it's not. Okay. Hundred percent it's not there. <laughs> I do check and no. Um <laughs> but it exists. Much like music Mm -hmm. and podcasts about it. Um, That was exciting to do. But I do, at the top of the show, want to, a little housekeeping. So there is no new episode of Briarpatch this week uh, on television. And thus we are not doing our, you know, what hopefully will become a traditional episode recap. And so I just wanted to give people a little bit of the behind the scenes about that. There has been some alarm and I get it. I get, uh, as someone who used to be uh, used to be on the other side of this, I understand why a sudden time slot change doesn't seem like the best thing. Might not be the best thing, but it also might be the best thing. Just to bring you guys fully in on everything, our ratings are fine. And, you know, our DVR stuff and on-demand stuff, which is how basically people watch TV these days, are fine. The demo number, mm. which is the number people look for of younger, like 18 to 49-year-olds, I love that demo because we are still in We're it. We're still
0: in it, man. We still got um, it. Was not, was not awesome. Right.
2: And when they told me that, I was like, do they know that Ed Asner joins the show in <laughs> episode three? And does that move the needle?
0: And it's also like, it's really <laughs> dismissing the very vocal group of 13-year-olds who are watching. By and my fashion. parents. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, as it turns out, they were rerunning the show after one of their most popular programs, which is Monday Night Raw mm-hmm. Wrestling. And the demo numbers were really good. Yeah. So... Truly, truly, I say this, um, to the best of my knowledge and from what everyone has told me, like, everyone likes the show uh, at the network. Everyone is supporting the show, and they've been amazing. And if you've been watching it on DVR or on demand, nothing changes. Episode 3 is on demand now for you to watch, and I hope you do. I think it's a really good one and one of our – really sort of the one that pivots towards the rest of the season because it's the first one that we did with the writer's room up and running. Sure. And I'm, I'm really excited for people to see it. Amazing cast joining the show in this episode. Um, and
0: our episode next Thursday, we'll have one w- of the writers. Though. Yes,
2: we'll have Eva Anderson, who wrote the episode, joining us to talk about it. So what this means is, if you've been watching it on DVR or on demand, and chances are, if you've been watching it, that is how you've been doing it. Yeah. Nothing changes. Please continue to enjoy the show. And if you've on demanded it at once, keep it running when you leave the house. Yeah. No, I don't think that would work. But but I, you know, welcome my new Undertaker Stand Stone Cold for, Andy Greenwald. I mean, it's just perfect because, as you know, as someone who has been passionate about wrestling from the beginning and never shied away from my love for it, no, I, I, I am excited about the move. I'm excited about the possibility of new viewers. I actually love that wrestling fans seem to be enjoying this show. It's right. not what I would have expected, but I love it. Other than David Shoemaker, who I think is the literally the Primary Venn diagram eyes. of both of these things. fennessy's
0: brother and Shoemaker. That's fantastic yeah. to me.
2: Um, and look, you know... Uh, I remain very bullish about this show. I'm extremely proud of the work that we did. I think the best episodes are very much still to come, and all of them are going to air. I did see a French website announcing that the show had been canceled, and, like uh, and I was Le like Mond French
0: or, or a different kind pe- of French,
2: pe- you know, no. no, no, I don't know. <laughs> I saw a tweet in French and I was like, cancel culture has gone too far
0: when they canceled my patches. Gallic friends. <laughs> right.
2: That's absolutely not the case. The entire season is going to air. Uh, That's and then, the most important thing. And then a decision is going to be made about, f- about future stories. But look, this is the whole story for this season anyway. And, uh, it's only going to get better. So I'm excited for you guys to check out what's to come. And if you're so inclined, you can watch episode three now, and we'll talk about it next week. But if you really want to watch it linearly, Mondays after wrestling at 11 p.m. Yeah. is when you can do it.
0: Um, so let's talk a little bit about Westworld because— Yeah, my favorite topic. It is your favorite topic. Westworld remains probably—I would, I would almost venture to say that Westworld is the flagship show of HBO at this point. Huh. Um, we've done our part to make it the outsider. We've tried, um, yes, and I but, think Outsider is doing quite well.
2: But I would say, purely from what appears to be an economic outlay, uh, judging by this trailer for season three, then mm-hmm. then yes, yes, this is in their, the
0: absence of Thrones and in the absence of a Thrones prequel or, or a second season of Watchmen.
2: This would appear yeah. to be their flagship show at the moment. Yes. Yeah.
0: And they they certainly pulled out all the stops for this final trailer. So the new season, season three, comes out March 22nd, I believe. And I was very struck by a couple of things by this trailer. So the full trailer went up. We'll put that. I think the watch has already tweeted it out, but we'll put it, it with the episode. And when you say
2: final trailer, you mean final trailer for the season before the season debuts. It has it not necessarily been announced as the last season of the show. No. Although there are vibes of that. You think in so? The trailer.
0: Okay, so let's start talking about the vibes then. Uh, you go first.
2: This trailer looks more expensive than not only the show that I made, but every show I've ever watched put together. (laughs) Uh If you attached a GoPro camera to Scrooge McDuck's head as he did his signature Greg Louganis-style high dive into his vault of money, this is what the GoPro would capture. It's staggering. Uh, Two, I guess we're going full Matrix, full sci-fi. Yeah,
0: so I, my my way. note was Blade Runner with less pollution. Yes, clean, yeah.
2: clean, clean Blade Runner. Yeah. It is a, and I say this, and everyone knows who listens to this podcast that I've never been a big fan of the show. This trailer, honestly, is the most compelling document to watch at the mm-hmm. show that maybe I've ever seen. It's an exceptional trailer.
0: Yeah. I think part of the issue with the seasons that preceded this was it was impossible to pitch this show as a character-based show. It was mm-hmm. impossible to be like, come back to Westworld because you care what happens to Tanny Newton or you care what happens to Jeffrey Wright. Primarily because the show went to such extremes to be like, well, they they can be anyone. Mm-hmm. They can be reprogrammed. They can be booted down. Mm-hmm. Their deaths are really more of like a moral thing and an mm-hmm. ethical thing than they are like a- And a timeline thing. A time, yeah, and exactly. And also at any given point, the rug can be pulled out from under you and you can find out that this thing, you know, we, there was speculation that Westworld was taking place on the moon or Mars mm-hmm. or whatever. And I was struck by, aside from the look and obviously the change in location, the way that they tried to emphasize, like, it's just the five of us.
2: Which I thought and I was it, really
0: struck by that too. I, and I was like, oh, so like they're really trying to make it feel like Evan Rachel Wood, Tessa Thompson, Tanny Newton, Jeffrey Wright, Ed Harris, and the newly arrived Aaron Paul mm-hmm. are somehow like, the gang from the island and Lost. Yeah, like, these we are have our been core, on this journey four, with these five. people, and I have such an emotional attachment mm-hmm. to these people, which I do not, but I am very interested by that pivot because I feel like that's a good note to take. Mm-hmm. Now, they also went very far in being like, Tanny Newton's the bad guy in this show, or at least is working for Vincent Cassell, who is hiring, who seems like the bad guy. I love Vincent Cassell. Sure, there will be a twist there. Evan Rachel Wood is definitely the hero and it re-pivots because in the original original teasers, mm-hmm. Aaron Paul's character seemed like he might be the hero or the protagonist of the show mm-hmm. and that he would be the guy who's working construction in this sort of like very dystopian Epcot center of a city mm-hmm. and being brought into this world. But this really made it more like Evan Rachel Wood's Dolores is Neo. So to speak to your Matrix thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: to the, the point you're making... It was really nice and clarifying, actually. And it's it, this is either a positive in the short term or maybe it's a negative if you if you extrapolate what I'm saying over the course of two previous seasons, to say the five actors that you mentioned are top of the line actors. Yeah. These are great actors. And they've actors. had
0: Tessa Thompson like on the line for a minute. Is she yeah. a robot now? Is uh, that the story? She is if I I'm gonna get killed for this, but I think she's at Harris's daughter. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Right.
2: But so, not a robot? Yep. Or does that not matter? I okay. mean, well, anyway, who knows, look, right? Who knows? Yeah. I think that what was really, other thing that I would say that was really impressive about it is that it did appear that HBO has learned a lesson or two from Netflix, which was to make seasons events.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's the Stranger Things model where they fully branded this trailer, which is, again, more lavish than most big budget movies. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the season has a price tag equivalent to a big budget No, they have like
0: RoboCop robots running around. Yeah.
2: They positioned it like a sequel, like a movie, like an event. And that's interesting because it will not be unveiled to us like an event. It Mm -hmm. will be week to week. But they are selling the spectacle and the scope in a way that I don't know if – I don't – I'm trying to get it exactly right, what felt different about it. And I I guess on some level I've felt that HBO in the past has leaned into its – programming style which is to say that the trailers and teasers obviously things changed once we got into the later throne seasons but generally even thrones the teasers and trailers were more uh literally teasers even the larger ones were whispers and hints of the journey that will begin on a certain sunday night yes not the scope of what we're headed towards you know and at the end of thrones maybe they would show uh, an army massing in front of wherever they happen to be massing i've forgotten the names of all the locations of Game of Thrones right. after 6 months. Sorry. But Winterfell. That instance. was it. Yeah. I was going to call it Castle Black, which was a different place. Yeah. Don't worry, I've turned in my binge mode card. <laughs> I am no longer uh And you were just
0: one punch away from a free binge. I know,
2: and I no longer deserve it. I have expired. Um so that alone was interesting that it's Westworld 3. But I have a larger So look, if you were into the show already, I bet you're going to be really happy. Uh-huh. Judging by Twitter reaction already, and even the way that I enjoyed watching the trailer, this is the, that rare kind of marketing that might bring people back. Yeah. But here's my larger take. And if this needs to go on the Spotify premium podcast, the hottest take, so be it. Mm-hmm. I also am workshopping a lukewarm take podcast for title. That's good. Um,
0: Doug, Doug already published it, unfortunately. <laughs> Damn it.
2: <laughs> um, and I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about it in relation to not just Westworld, but other uh, popular entertainments. Mm. I don't care about AI. I, I fundamentally...
0: I, have, I, yeah. I don't think that they do anymore either. Well... Because part of this trailer was that AI stuff that they were doing in the first two seasons and yeah. about, like, the Uncanny Valley. It's still there, but I feel like they are trying to tie the bow around the idea of, like, what if we're the robots? I get that. Like, and that there is a class war happening, and that the working class people are actually like being treated like Dolores. Well, that's
2: interesting, and that obviously is more interesting to me based on my inflammatory statement of a moment ago. But I've been watching Star Trek: Picard mm. more than the pilot, mm. because as I swore on this podcast, I I love Patrick Stewart, and I and I I subscribe to CBS All Access. You
0: do swear it,
2: um, and I'm struggling with it. Uh huh. I'm struggling with it for a bunch of reasons, but I think one of the primary reasons is, so far anyway, with the character, with one of the, like the primary motivator of the plot is this uh, being that may or may not be Data's daughter. Mm-hmm. The inciting incident prior to the series is a time when synths, as they're calling them on Star Trek, rebelled and killed a lot of humans. And I I don't care. And it's weird, but I, I, I just was watching... Picard and and you know, and he's making the argument that the character Picard made over the course of Star Trek the Next Generation that that Lieutenant Commander Data was a had was a person with a soul and couldn't be dismissed, and that worked well as a relationship between two characters as one was growing and changing and learning feelings and whatever. but this argument that sci-fi seems to really want to make all the time that computers <laughs> are a species that we need to learn to love and empathize and respect with, and then making the the computers— And they always rise up and kill us. The protagonists. Yeah. First of all, shame on us. We are Lucy (laughs) with a football. They're just going to do it again. Yeah. But two, isn't this why Black Mirror has resonated so successfully? Because Black Mirror's whole thesis is that this is not speculative fiction where we need to imagine a world where you can dip an exoskeleton in goo and come out with Evan Rachel Wood. It's basically saying we are already slaves to technology in insidious ways, and rather than try to argue that Siri should have voting rights, we might just want to question where we're at. You know what I mean? I love this take. So it's bizarre to me that that again. I don't and think again, I would.
0: I don't know that I would have been very engaged with a third season of what are we doing to the robots? It, it's, it's it's odd
2: because in it, honestly, on some level, it. I mean, we. How much do you want me to escalate this take? Let's I can. Go ahead. I, I can pull the fire alarm, and the sprinklers won't put it out, which is to say that humans have plenty of problems as is. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah.
2: And as your point about maybe the smart move in Westworld season three, which we have not seen, uh-uh. and will reserve judgment on, could be that they are bringing in this idea of a class issue mm-hmm. involving humans instead of just. But robots. if Aaron Paul's like, but, turns out I'm a bot. But it does speak to this kind of distancing and sort of creative fear of actually dealing with relevant things in our life that also creates things like the dearly departed Confederate TV series, Mm. which is to say, instead of making a show about class, if you want to make a show about class, or race, if you want to make a show about race, or just mistreatment of others, you have to dress it up in this, hmm, speculative what if, General E. Lee stroking (laughs) his beard in the White House lawn kind of nonsense. Yes. And it's like, what are,
0: what are we really doing here? Did you ever read any, like, alternative history books when you were a kid? Not alternative history. Oh,
2: oh, like the real truth that they won't tell you? No, if, I mean, like, what if
0: FDR had done this book? You mean
2: every Bill O'Reilly book? <laughs> is that the new book club? <laughs> Isn't every Bill O'Reilly book, like, like Abraham Lincoln is sitting in the booth watching theater, and he's like, theater is for sissies. And he gets up and notices John Wilkes Booth, and he wrestles him to a ground, right. and then, you know, shoots the Constitution Gives in the face. Texas
0: back, to, yeah, right. Or whatever. Yes.
2: No, the answer is no. Now, mm-hmm. did I read Star Trek The Next Generation novelizations? Chris, I sure did. So if you ever want
0: to talk about that, avail. Um, so that's Westworld. That's coming out in <laughs> That's March. it. We will probably be talking about Westworld. I know that Danny Heifetz and David Shoemaker will be talking about Westworld uh, going forward. You may notice an absence of survivor takes on this episode of yeah. The Watch. I r- highly recommend listening to Go ahead, Riley McAtee on Ringer Dish talking about Survivor. Today he talked about it with Mallory Rubin. It was another great episode. What's going on with Survivor? Do you want me You no. sound 1000 years old. I don't want to
2: know. Uh-huh. Because I have 20 years in pot committed not to the knowing. bit of not
0: caring. It's just good this year. But how is it better? Because all the players are good because they've all won before.
2: So this is the same way I'm going to be talking about Top Chef All Stars in it, a month.
0: But it's like if they played the NBA All-Star game and that was the only game that counted.
2: Which is what happened last week.
0: Yeah, but, like, that's it. There's not. Then you go back to the books.
2: I want people to understand that one of the things that we lost after we gave up our brief dalliance with YouTube is you can't see the way Chris's eyes just, like, turned into burning sapphires of intensity. Like, I know, I know we have, like, he likes high fidelity, blah, blah, blah. Chris likes all sorts of things. But I haven't seen that look in your
1: eye.
0: yeah.
2: Since uh, the Philadelphia Eagles since
0: Sicario came out,
2: since no, since the poster for Sicario Two came out, or the Eagles won the Super Bowl. That's right. You are
0: no. Red I'm just trying to explain. I know you won't watch it, but I'm just trying to tell you this is why people are so excited. And the gameplay is on a level that I would say I've, I personally have not seen. Well, before. But like a couple weeks ago, wasn't
2: everyone like Jeff Probst is problematic in the way he's handling yes, stuff? Is it this was the, the same def- season. No, it's a different season.
0: But that was like two weeks ago. They do a winter spring season and a fall Christmas season.
2: So really? it usually
0: ends, I think, around, around Christmas because I usually don't get to watch the finale with my and wife. And you've, I know we've done this multiple times over the last eight years of this podcast. You watch all, you watch them all. I do. Wednesday night, I watch Survivor with my wife. It is like a really common thing in America. God.
2: America is amazing. <laughs> you watch stuff through. with
0: your wife all the time.
2: Not really. Mostly we watch our Apple TV menu screen and decide what we think about. Maybe, Maybe we'll, you know... Can I ask you a question? Finish this out, and then we don't.
0: Will you be watching Better Call Saul with your wife? No, she hasn't watched that show. Okay. Will you be be watching Better Call Saul, though? Goddamn right. Yeah, so that comes back Sunday. This week already? Better Call Saul comes on Sunday night. And also Monday. That's great. They're putting up the first two.
2: Let's say, um, just by way of transition, then we'll get into this Chris Garaba conversation. Um, What a ride it's been for us at AMC's flagship show, Better Call Saul. (laughs) But really, just to say, we were all in on the first season or so, and then we both slacked. And I don't remember which one of us first like spent a little time on Netflix just you catching did. up. You did
0: you? This was like a real like OG Greenwald text where you got off a plane <laughs> and you were like, "Just watched Nine Souls, time to get back in." And I was like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, I I was dressed
2: like Josh Brolin in Sicario One.
0: <laughs> That's right
2: on the plane, and it's this weird um, uh, like quasi-cobbled-together version of contemporary prestige TV viewing where we watched it linearly. We bailed because we weren't vibing with it. It is exemplary when viewed when you can binge it. And the, the previous season is now on Netflix. And, mm-hmm. and then we got so into it and became, it both fell so in love with that show's just outrageous batting average. It's the best-written show on television. And it's so crisp and everything is just in concert with each other. And it's, you know, it's like watching... I know everyone loves it when I make sports analogies, but it is like watching an offense that's been playing together Mm -hmm. for years, and they just every piece of it from production design to direction to performance it just anticipates each other's moves and complements each other. And we loved it so much we are back linear. Mm -hmm. Like I will, I will after the show weekly again.
0: So a lot, there's a lot of stuff. There's Outsider is is wrapping up soon. Yeah, and, so, and I think ramping up. Yeah, ramping up and ramping down, and so we have Outsider on Sunday, Saul on Sunday. We'll talk about that stuff on Monday, and then we will get back into Briar Patch and some other stuff on the following Thursday. I'm excited about Top Chef too, but I guess only your reality show gets to get. To I'll talk tell about. you what, man. If you want me to watch Top Chef All Stars, if you watch Survivor, we can trade. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if I have an hour of yeah. your time, I'm going to cash in on something else. That's
2: fine. That's fine. We'll work this out offline. So let me just say, by way of introduction to this, I hadn't seen Chris Caraba in, honestly, it was probably nine years um, since the show he was playing in New York. We've been in touch since then. We've texted. We're on very good terms, obviously, as you can hear. Um, He called into this podcast a couple years ago when we did a sort of emo special. nothing but a good friend to me and to us in this show. But what a trip it was to see him in person and get a chance to talk about stuff. Particularly, a lot of our conversation was kind of, I mean, maybe this is a little inside baseball, but we are both older people in the world with lives and families now. And looking back on the time I spent with him, not just where I was in my career as like a 24-year-old who was somehow writing a book for the first time or a spin cover story for the first time, but weirdly, he was always so accessible to me. And we, had, you know, and we talk about this, we had very clear delineations of private life and public life, which might come as a surprise to people who think that he's just gushes and songs. And I always respected that, which I think got me more time with him. But looking back, like, I mean, I was on tour with him and had access to everything. It was weird how preternaturally uh, confident and calm he was about everything. And also, I mean, Almost Famous had been out for two years, like, you're not. We're not supposed to be friendly or trust each other, probably. right? So a lot of the conversation was about that, also about how he seems to be Benjamin Buttoning and just looks younger than ever and <laughs> has an incredible beard now. Um, but also, and I'll say this at the top, he was here to promote his truly, truly awesome best of, his first best of. It's called The Best Ones, The Best Ones. And as we talk about in the interview, it's really cool to hear how he has grown as an artist and songwriter and that the songs from his last record from a year or two ago at the end of the compilation – really sound of a piece with the earlier songs. And, you know, it's exciting that someone who was so much a part of a phenomenon and maybe dismissed by more snobbish people as just being part of a a phenomenon or emo or whatever it was, he's just a good songwriter and he's got great songs and he's out there playing the hell out of them, doing full albums, doing all these hits uh, with a full room of now 30 and 40-year-olds singing back to him. And I I think it was cool. It's kind of amazing to be able to check back in with someone that was a part of your uh, earlier For sure I can't career. wait
0: to listen to the to the interview.
2: If you listen to the interview I'll watch Survivor.
0: <laughs> okay, coming up next is Chris Carava. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zoro.com If you purchase supplies for a small to mid-sized business, Zorro.com, Z-O-R-O.com is your go-to resource. At Zoro, you'll find all the things that keep a business running no matter what kind of business you're in. Zorro offers tools, safety equipment, cleaning and maintenance supplies, office and shipping, automotive, industrial equipment, and more, including these specialty items you can't find anywhere else. Whether you're shopping for an office, factory, contracting business, or machine shop, you can get exactly what you need. And when you shop Zorro, you'll find brands you already know and trust like 3M, Prestone, Milwaukee Tool, Schneider Electric, and Proto all at competitive prices want fast free shipping it's yours when you spend more than 50 dollars. and if you have a question or return or need help finding exactly the right item count on zorro's customer service team based right here in the u.s visit zoro.com slash watch and sign up for zmail to get 15 percent off your first order that's zorro.com slash watch to sign up for zmail and get 15 percent off zorro.com all you need to make your business go
2: I don't even know how to begin this other than to say, what a thrill to be sitting here after 19 years of knowing each other, yeah. almost.
1: Yeah. And we'll get into that. And both of us looking like we're still 19. How well, do, do you, you like that? Here's this the is, thing.
2: I was actually going to introduce my guest
1: as Benjamin Button. <laughs> Chris Caraba, yeah. you look amazing. I grew a beard so that I could look almost my, like half my age. <laughs> you're no. kidding. You look great. Thanks. I feel great. You look great. How do you feel? I feel okay. You feel okay. Yeah, I don't feel as good as you look, but I think I'm oh. generally okay. Do we need to stretch. We stretch before the, I think, we well, really I was get doing into the exercises. Oh, we the, oh, the have, tables have
2: turned. We spent a lot of time talking. We have over the years. We have. You were kind enough to call into this podcast a couple of years ago, we but did. we haven't sat across from each other with recording devices
1: in like ten years. That's true. Longer. The beauty of it is that when we did it the first time, we I got a great friend out of this whole thing. You That's know nice. how many talk, people you talk to, and they, yeah. you know. I mean, you do this and there's people in and out of your life every day, maybe for a few hours, maybe for a few weeks, whatever it is, the assignment. And it's very rare that you end up just like saying, oh, I got a life for here. I got a lifelong friend. That's so kind of you to say.
2: And it it actually brings me to one of the things I wanted to talk to you about when we get into it. And I think we should get into it, which is about me. No, uh, which is (laughs) how— Looking back at all the time we spent together, and so for people who who don't know this, like I was first assigned to write about Chris for Spin Magazine in the fall of two thousand one.
1: My first real big press opportunity, seriously, like it, seriously respected press opportunity.
2: And it was for the front of the book section. Like within a year, I was doing a cover story on you. I then wrote a book that was a lot about you and time spent with you. Mm-hmm. And great book. Many many plug, plug the book. I'll it's plug such the book. a good book. Still out there. Nothing yeah. feels good. Looking back, I had no idea what I was doing. I always thought of you as someone who knew clearly what he was doing, and I mostly don't understand how we got along so well because in retrospect the nature of what we were both doing at that moment where I was being sent to talk to you and you were you know on the come up and your career was blossoming and blooming and people were probably trying to take from you all the time how did we navigate that and end up mutually respecting and even liking each other Because you saying that is so kind to me and so generous, and I feel like I I never wanted to be antagonistic in any journalistic relationship that I did.
1: Well, that's not your nature.
2: It's not my nature, but even so, we navigated some stuff, and I think it's kind of remarkable to be able to look back on it.
1: Yeah, so I would say if I were to try to describe how that came to be Mm -hmm. was I think my viewpoint was a little bit flipped from yours, Mm -hmm. where I thought you had everything together. You were professional. (laughs) <laughs> this, uh, this
2: is going to be a great talk. Like professionally already. employed, yeah. I, I, I did have a, I had a job.
1: I didn't really have a job. I sang in a band. That's not really a job, right? And it wasn't like this predestined thing where I'd be sitting with you twenty years later. Yeah, it was a moment in time for me, mm-hmm. and a precarious one. If you really look at it, it's not like job security material. Mm-hmm. And I looked up to you. I thought, like, this is a guy who's. Right around my age, who's really super focused. And that's something I felt like I had, even though I thought I was on a more tenuous path. Yeah. Too much chance. Too much improbability mm-hmm. in all this. No structure of how you get there. It's just like you ha- you get there somehow. It's
2: it's there waiting for you somehow. Somehow. Yeah.
1: And um, and I remember in that period where we were getting to know each other. Now, this was on a tour. Well, we'd, we'd done interviews together, but when we spent, where we really I became you friends, you came on tour with us. Yeah.
2: And that was, um, I can do this. It was when you and the band were opening for, wait Weezer. That, that was the Weezer tour, right? It was right? Weezer. Yeah. Yeah. You were opening for Weezer in like amphitheaters throughout the Southwest. So uh, here's, California. A, here's a fantastic
1: moment. 2002. Was it two? It was two. Yeah. So here's this. That tour is going off to college now. That tour is now 18 years old. <laughs> and that tour... Was special in that, like, it was the closest thing that I had to this, like, give me your foot in my hand. I'm going to give you a booster. Right. Like, Weezer kind of plucked us out like we were doing very well Mm -hmm. in really, really dingy small places and still some basement shows and still some house shows. Plenty to your fans. Plenty to our fans. Plenty of nights sleeping on couches. Starting to sell some tickets in, like, real clubs. Mm -hmm. But still sleeping on couches and and touring in the van and and, then— which was actually like this romantic and great time. You know, mm-hmm. you really bond in a special way in that time. And then Weezer just decides like, I like what they're doing. Let's give them a shot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And now there was a lot of transitional things happening for me on that, on that um, tour. For example, being on a bus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a dynamic shift for your band in a couple of ways because it feels like a success mile marker to grow into a a band that tours on a bus. Oh, it's a big It's a little inside baseball, but it's, it's the truth. It's like, you know, you've got enough momentum behind you and, and you're making uh, m- enough... Buses are expensive. You've, you've suddenly made up enough money where it's more cost-effective to be in a bus than a van.
2: It's one of the biggest leaps any band can make and it's one of the least understood because yes. I think people... When people think of bands, they think of them either as a fully formed success story with a beautiful bus that, you know, take ferries them to and from gigs or... The more scrappy underdog punk version of it.
1: And so we were like holding onto the former, but in the latter. Mm -hmm. And the Weezer guys were social enough, but they were like this giant band. It was a return to form for Weezer at that time. Do you remember they had taken a hiatus?
2: Yeah, and they actually came back and suddenly were bigger. That, That summer, like coming off the Green Album and everything, they were in some ways
1: bigger or at least more prepared to be big than they were in the 90s. Yeah, for sure, because I saw them when they were big, like inarguably mm-hmm. huge, but it was just a club like any other yep. club. And this is, it was the week uh, um, Pinkerton came out. So they're still on that crest from yep. the Blue Album, which was just this massive commercial success. <laughs> to Pinkerton, which wasn't. Uh, to Pinkerton that wasn't, but was. <laughs> commercially. Which wasn't a commercial success, but would become, I think, a um, a work that's respected in in a, in a way that I think, I hope, hope for them is super validating because it's a special piece of music.
2: Absolutely. And here they were inviting you to play with them in every venue called the Tweeter Center.
1: <laughs> yeah, they were all called the Twitter Center. Everything was Tweeter Center. Are Man. they still Tweeter Centers? I no, feel like no, that, that, that has a different meaning now. change all the time. You know, so but, many Tweeter Centers. Yeah, Tweeter Centers have a different meaning. That's fun. And so we were, so I say this to illustrate that we were not exactly sure-footed. As we were out there on this tour, we felt like a little bit. Like, thankfully, Sparta was out there. And those oh, are yeah, our buddies, right. right? Nice guys. And yeah, the for Sparta's um, one half of at the drive-in when they when they split into factions, and the, the other half was Veto Mar- O'Rourke, I believe. Was <laughs> He was the third faction he of was, that band. Somehow. He was, yeah, for Mars Mars Volta, you know. And then, uh, oh, thankfully they were on the on that. Now I remember. And that, they were yeah. all they were like I, when I when I talk about Weezer, I make sure to say like they were. Really gracious. Mm-hmm. But they were like very, very focused on their work, and they had a lot mm-hmm. of work to do. So we just wasn't like who we were hanging out with. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, once in a while, like I'd play foosball with Rivers, I remember which is that. still weird, right? Yep. You played foosball with me with Rivers.
2: Yeah. I watched um, you play. I was not invited to the table.
1: Is that, was that your journalistic integrity? Like I, I can't Absolutely. actually play. I have to observe.
2: Well, I also think—
1: uh, Don't be part of the story. Weezer
2: made it very clear I was not there to interview them. Did you know, they? It was made clear to me. I don't know if they cared.
1: Oh, gave. oh right, right. But yeah, yeah. But I, it wasn't
2: a bad thing. I was just, I was just
1: with you. I was your plus one. <laughs> so you'll always be my plus one. Oh. Um, but I think this all illustrates like the place we were in. It was all flux. It was all in flux. It was like I was just kind of open to a new friend that I'd be excited about. And so when you came in, you came in to do your job, and I was there to do my job as it pertained mm-hmm. to this writing. But how lucky because uh, we sat in that back lounge. And when the, I don't know if the interviews were ever over. That's right. But it didn't really matter. We just kept talking and talking and talking. Some of those talks would make it into your book or mm-hmm. make it into the story itself. And some of them wouldn't because they were just ours to keep. Yeah, you know? that's true. And those were my favorites. There was know? a line there. Yeah. They were just special. And um, having a journalist like come in, mm-hmm. um, embed themselves with us for that length of time and really kind of become – just really, part of our inner circle forever. That's, I mean, the closest I can think is Jenny. You know, Jenny Elskew, who mm-hmm. um, was there for all that time as well. Yeah, and this is all all long winded for me to say. Like in my you know infancy of understanding how music journalism and bands work, I was like, oh, I'll be best friends with every writer <laughs> that I meet. What could go wrong? <laughs> what could ever go wrong? And it's just you know not the case. You know, I really appreciate that. And then to watch you go on to do. Um, to rise in the ranks, and then switch bravely, switch paths here and there. And I was kind of switching paths here and there. And we were kind of losing touch over time, and then rekindling our our friendship where we could, when we could, as busy as we've gotten. But we have this great basis for a friendship that I think can't we can't lose.
2: Well, I, I appreciate it. That means a lot. And I, I it's still though. And, and what's one of the things that I've always found noteworthy about you is that. During all of the tumult of those years, you know, and they were – and I was thinking about it. We talk about how fast things happen now and things, thanks to the internet, do happen awfully quickly. But it all happened pretty fast, you know, to go from – and I will have said at this point, time travel, I will have introduced you and talked about how we're talking specifically in the shadow of this 20th anniversary collection, um, The Best Ones, The Best Ones, which is (laughs) well-named and well-chosen and pretty awesome – you know, to go from starting the band to being on the cover of magazines, to touring with Weezer, to all of that, to having, you know, and the other thing I wrote about in the book on those Tweeter Center tours, Jimmy Iovine private jetting in. Jimmy Iovine, headphone magnet now, uh, yeah. mogul, but at the time, the mover and shaker in the music business, jetting into your shows, anointing you basically, yeah. the next big thing. You were pretty unflappable publicly you know, and privately as well. You know, I think that we talked very intimately and honestly about things and you were never uh, withholding as far as I could tell. But you also were very even keeled. And looking back on it, I don't know how that was possible. I wonder if you look back on it or differently now, if you were freaking out inside in a way that you didn't appreciate or if there was something else like some sort of, um, whether it was a North Star or like a, a, some sort of home base that you were able to keep one hand on even when the whole world was spinning out. Of what appeared to be out of anyone's control.
1: Thought about this, yeah. I think it's um, equal parts that this thing that I built, you know, in the writing the songs and recording them was everything was hard scrabble, mm-hmm. not the way successful records are are made. True.
2: There was um, there were no necessarily there were no eyes. There was no pressure.
1: Right. At the no time. eyes no, at you, all. You were
2: not eighteen. You nope. were in your twenties. I was
1: in my early twenties and. Uh, I was collecting what would seemed like a wealth of life experience. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It was a little myopic because when you're young, that's how it is, right? You,
2: you cannot know what you don't know. You can't the, know and what you don't know. And you're less interested in what you don't know.
1: But what I did have, I think, was a depth, maybe a little bit beyond my years, maybe a few steps, about how to decipher these things into these, these anomalous, overwhelming feelings and funnel them into something useful, music. hmm And that was the be-all and end-all of it. All that was already done. So the successes or failures couldn't take away the thing that I regarded as the only real metric that I tried to meet or exceed, which was write something really honest, record it fairly well. Getting to work with James Wisner made it sound really great. Mm -hmm. So then it recorded really well. um, And share it with as many people as I could. Pretty simple goal. So I didn't lose that focus. Like things don't have to be as complicated, even though these moving parts and these big names. Like Jimmy's a big name, but he's, his personality's big. It's daunting. Right. You can see that in the Defiant Ones, you can glean that this guy's like he's, he's – there's an engine running deep inside him mm-hmm. that's, that, that's like – that's redlining all the time. And um, I remember, you know, like he, Chris, you know, you're going to be the greatest of all time. You know, you remind me of, uh, you know, when I first worked with Tom and uh, Bruce, right? And uh, I think you're going to be the guy, man. You're going to be the guy. And I didn't believe him, but I I thought it was fantastic, you know, to have somebody believe in me like that because I knew he was genuine. One thing I can say about Jimmy Iovine is he doesn't uh, shine you up unless he really believes in you. He will break you down if he doesn't believe in you. And he's done that with me when I've gotten things wrong or veered from the past. You know, I don't work with Jimmy anymore. He doesn't really work in that capacity any longer. But I still consider him a mentor. Yeah. And if I were to reach out to him, he does reply. You know, he's not so far removed from music that he doesn't love to connect in that way. But Jimmy was the one of all the things that was happening. It was, you you, you nailed it. It was Jimmy Iovine that made it, that could have made it, where I couldn't let any steam out of the kettle, any more steam out of right. the kettle. Like I could have just sunk under that pressure, right. But I had early on just given myself this self-imposed like two-year window mm-hmm. that would repeat. Like if I got to two years and it looked like I could get two more years, I would do it. But if not, I'd go back and teach. And right. You had that you had that always in your mind. You had that I,
2: presence. I mean, it was not for show that when I visited you the first time in Florida, we went back to the school. Right. And you were welcomed as if you had not left because in yeah. some ways you hadn't.
1: I hadn't. No, I'd still go there and volunteer and I, I loved it so much. And, and I thought that would be a really fantastic career. It was a really rewarding job. So at worst, I was going to do this other job I loved, which was a much more quiet lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the loudness of the lifestyle was not the thing I was ever attracted to and I'm still not. Well, I think
2: one of the things that I, in retrospect, feels misunderstood about you in your career was that the songs were always, you know, interpreted immediately as like your diaries. Yeah. And that you were completely translucent. You know, you were sharing absolutely everything, holding nothing back. Also, that's connected to your performance style. One of the things I noted at the time and didn't talk about, of course, because, you know, that was something that we had agreed on, was that you did have a very strong firewall between your actual life and your public life. Not emotionally when what you chose to share in songs, but specifically, you know, who you were with, how you were living your life, where you were physically in the world when you weren't on stage. And, you know, I always respected it. And I can confess, you know, I didn't understand it at the time. Why not? Hardly because I was young and didn't understand the value of any privacy, you know, something that, you know, now that I'm older and have a family, I take very seriously. And also now the way the world is, you know, it's, I find it terrifying the lack of privacy that we can easily give into um, and probably are at this moment without even realizing it. But, you know, in retrospect now, I just think that was a remarkably strong uh, choice, isn't the word, the remarkably strong belief and way of life, you know, that you imposed early. And I guess the question that I have now after all these years is how did you know?
1: Well, I thought that I, I would stunt my ability to be able to write freely if people knew the specificities of right. maybe who the song were, was about or how I lived my life or geographically where I lived at a given moment. Do you
2: remember it was a big deal when I said that the hairs that were everywhere were red? I remember I gave that, that away in a story. And I that was remember. huge. Yeah, was, and that was specific. That was, yeah. detail.
1: It was a detail. It, it, <laughs> it blew up my the, message boards at bl- the time. It, you know? it
2: blew up MySpace.
1: Yeah, my, MySpace was a... Friendster. Was, was, yeah. <laughs> <For> <laughs> All the Zanga blogs were just like... Anyway. Um, but it, yeah, that was a revealing... And it was true. Yeah. Um, can confirm can 20 con- years later. Can confirm. <laughs> nice. Nice reference. Um, it was important to me because, as all things, there's, it's, there's like dualities in the reasoning, right? hmm one was that I knew that I couldn't – I didn't think – I didn't believe that I could write freely about the things I needed to write about. If I thought – if you knew the person I was writing about, you'd perceive it as I was maybe taking a person down. Mm-hmm. But I think of a song, like I'll just talk about a song for a minute because it was on my mind the other night. There is a song called They Gonna Go Unnoticed of mine.
2: hmm. On this collection. It's on this collection.
1: So. And in this song, I can see how the listener can see that it's me singing specifically about kind of being walled off from the person I'm with that I care about so much as she is moving on before I'm ready. Sure. But I'd started writing that about knowing that she felt I was doing that. Mm. And then kind of intermingling it with me feeling like, oh, started to realize like in the writing of it, like, no, we're both doing this. So it's like I was just as much to, if there's blame in that song. I don't think there's blame in that song. But if you were Mm -hmm. to say that there's like a protagonist and an antagonist in that song, I don't think it's true. Mm -hmm. I just did it in a way that was… Obscured who, who it was, always me delivering the song. It, it became my point of view, but it really wasn't. It was this shared point of view, I think. It was me trying to get inside her head and understand how she felt with this thing maybe going away, our relationship. And I kind of believed like if people knew who that other person was and who she, and or even where she was and where I was, like physically in the world, that maybe maybe they could only think about that person. Instead of making it about their, their own lives, as a listener, when I listen to them, I always choose the cure and build the spill for this because they write these songs that have to be, probably, about their own life experience. How could it sure. not be? But when I listen to them, I only hear it as my life experience.
2: Yes, there's a universality and there's an openness, right? They're not closed off with the specifics of the person, the detail. They leave you out of it. Actually, and that's a fine line with it's specifics just, and details.
1: It's, you have to be careful, I guess, yeah. I, w- I would assume. I know I have to. Well, I think not just in terms of
2: giving things away, but I do think specificity is a key to art. Like, Oh, you if, must have it. You must have it, or yeah. else it could be about anything. But you can't limit yourself by locking into one point of view, one moment, one hair follicle, right. or else what is the way in for the audience? And you yeah. want it to be expansive. You want it to be
1: welcoming. So in those examples, like I don't, I don't know specifically what Robert Smith's life details were at that time. I think same. I think he's living in a haunted mansion with his wife for 50 years. I have to years. believe so, but he's probably in like the most colorful house <laughs> yes, in the world. Right. You know? Yeah, like, we who never knows? Know. Yeah. You know, and, and Martian built a spill were equally mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. And that aided me in letting these songs be about who I was and who I, what I was going through. I was attracted to that. And so subliminally, I think that was a little like roadmap. I think but that REM was like that too. Like I didn't know anything. Total uh, mystery. I we didn't, didn't know, know any- what he was singing. Yeah, <laughs> didn't time. know what he was singing. No. It's sometimes he wasn't singing words. I, I think that there's something to what you're
2: saying that is absolutely true. And it and it and it really is borne out by this collection because listening to these songs now, you know, they feel very wide open still. They feel very and, and yes, they feel nostalgic now for me in a different way than they might have felt to someone who was 14 or to you writing them. But they still feel open and alive, I think, because you never closed them off, you know, And I think that's kind of a remarkable thing to be able to revisit. and, you know, just to, to make a blanket statement about the collection, to hear the new songs, newer songs from the record you put out two years ago, same guy. You know, I, I think it's the same same voice. It, the voice has changed, and I mean and I mean that metaphorically, obviously, your perspective and your own life has changed, but they all hang together in a way that is really remarkable, considering the hard scrabble and young version of you that wrote the songs that start the collection
1: well i guess life doesn't exactly get easier even see here's the thing that <laughs> no. you discover you hope for something else when you're younger but what it as it turns out is that life gets better and better but it never gets easier does it
2: no it gets differently harder yes and and i think more harder in a more tactile way because your challenges are more concrete yeah And you have to deal with them and they are not this sort of collection of gaseous worry and anxiety and projection that is the, you know, the worry of in the life of a relatively stable and privileged young person like we were at the time. You know, once you take away like major concerns because we had housing, I slept in the back of that tour bus, for example. uh, What are you
1: worried about other than the future? You don't know. You don't know. And you what are you worried about now other than the future, right? Like but it's the future for different things. Exactly. Although,
2: you know, this was striking. I was listening to the collection this morning on the way here again and and remember and realizing how many lines and of course I didn't notice this at the time. I knew every word, but I didn't think about it. That in songs like Swiss Army Romance from your first record, you're talking about how fleeting life is, and youth is, not life, but I guess that's the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: What does a 23 or 4 year old know about that?
1: And then, I guess, and then now
2: I listen to it and I'm like, Boy, that guy was right.
1: You know, maybe there's an old soul factor. Some of it may possibly be that, like, I think I've had like a disproportionate amount of like tragic events in my life, like real tragedy for sure, losing young family members or friends the way too soon. There's no question that that you know the when we
2: met and the things that we talked about that you had experienced things that had affected you and you had already rebuilt yourself in relationship to them in a way that I don't know if a lot of young people have
1: had to do. So I, was, I kept a hard lid on that, and I, I guess I still keep a hard lid on that. But my I was no charmed life. Mm-hmm. It was a very difficult youth and young adult era, uh, and I didn't want that to be the story. Mm-hmm. But it did inform the songs. Mm-hmm. I so didn't want that to be the story that I, that's, I think that might have been the biggest impetus for me to be so private. I wanted to be able to explore so it would help me through these very hard things I had experienced as a young man and would ex- experience more of, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, you know. First of all, like, I, I lost a cousin. It was devastating to me. As a young person, as a teenager, you feel— In all things, like no one has ever felt the way you feel about this, whatever this is, that's before ever, right? You just paraphrased yourself. Did I?
2: No one could ever feel the way that I feel now.
1: Oh yeah, it's a pretty good line. Yeah, not bad. (laughs) Um, You realize, as time goes by, that uh, the power is yours to shape wonderful or difficult things in a healthy way, Mm -hmm. in the way that they affect you. And who you're going to be. But I didn't realize how. I just knew that it could be done. Mm-hmm. I was pouring it all into songs. Because I had just discovered that this is an um, overused word for my music. That my overused word for my music. But it was cathartic. And it was, a, it was deeply needed for me. To move on. Mm-hmm. To, frankly, to live. You know, I've been thinking about this. Like the path I was on, the one laid out in front of me, I wouldn't be here with you. And I'm not entirely sure I'd be here at all. Yeah. You know, um, I didn't fall into the drug trap that a lot of my friends did. And a disproportionate number of those are, are dead from drugs. I didn't fall into an aimlessness with some of my other friends did. And some of my other friends did phenomenally well. It's just that's that's how it is when you're young, you meet all these people with all this potential. and, and you're it, all at the starting line together. and then, all, yeah, and we're all equal. We're all yeah. equal with this potential, and just some of it it manifests itself in a healthy way, that energy, or maybe it maybe it's unhealthy, but that know, energy
2: is so interesting because I think that was the other most misunderstood thing about you and also about the you know the larger genre that I was writing about and that you got lumped into was this idea of catharsis versus wallowing. Right, right. And, you know, this was a very active engagement for you. And and I, you know, we talked, this is pre-therapy for me. And I imagine for a lot of younger people, like, this was not something that I did. This is not something that I understood. Or it's something I respected, but like the same way I would have respected like mountain climbing. Like, <laughs> like, that's impressive. Yeah, it is. You know, I guess you have to buy certain tools and have a lot of muscles to do that. And I'll... I'll, like stay neither, da- so. I'll stay down here. I better write a song. But but right, but like, but it, you were running right at these things and engaging with them rather than you know you, you weren't hiding from the intensity of the emotions.
1: Well, I didn't know anybody would be listening, so that helped, right? And then in in uh, regards to what you said about um, how it was misunderstood, mm. like I love emo, yeah, and I love being a part of that. I it's not a four letter word to me at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, will it's, say it's three. <laughs> there's. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. Well, you're the writer. Not the way so, I spell it. <laughs> the, there was a period, I think, uh, where things became a little bit derivative. wasn't my favorite era. Mm-hmm. But I probably wasn't the favorite era to the people that came before me. Mm-hmm. Or maybe some that came after me. Or, you know, not everything's for everybody. And some of the stuff that came a little, like, later in the emo evol- evolution of emo, was just it just wasn't for me. I wasn't like railing against it. I had no opinion. Like this is terrible. This is good. It just wasn't. It just wasn't for me. And that's enough. Mm-hmm. And I felt like a little bit like okay, this isn't my thing anymore. And that was a one period where if you were to ask me if we made, e- if our music was emo, I would have yeah. said no. Sure. Because I thought that the definition now applied to somebody else. Well, also it felt very
2: externalized because you know we would talk and we would talk about punk bands you were referencing. There were punk bands that had previously been labeled emo that you were referencing, but you were also talking about Built to Spill and REM and Bruce Springsteen and and things that you know were from a were placed in a completely different bin culturally. Back when I think uh, we fought about that stuff a lot more than we do now.
1: Yeah, and I also felt uh, just, and I'll say that I've come back to saying like there were different emos, and my sure. version of me and the peers that I like our our garage class, class, yeah. Is special to me, mm-hmm. and is effective to me. In it, it like, affects me, you know, like when I listen to my, oh. those bands. But when I, when I was first called, was, so I guess there was actually two times where I maybe like pushed back on the emo mm-hmm. fr- phrase. It was just in the very beginning when I felt it was disrespectful to. Well, it was dismissive, or at least no, how no. it was being delivered, this is in, this Oh, oh before, when it was dis- dismissive remember, to like, like spring, and sunny else. day. And- yeah, when, like anything else, you know, like hipster is like a derogatory term now, yeah. right? But it wasn't when it came out. It was just like, oh, this is kind of, of like— The guy in a Von Dutch hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, <laughs> Talk about dating this, ourselves. These folks have a thing, and it, they're identifying with it, and it's a scene. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And, it, and this term makes me understand, with a broad stroke, yeah. what's going on there. And that's all emo was— to me but i was very you know I, I i really held the progenitors of that scene in high regard mm-hmm. specifically texas at the reason sure. sunny day real estate promise ring american football cap and jazz even you know like bands that were on the bubble like mm-hmm. a, what is this band i don't mm-hmm. even know if this band but you know like lyrically there was something there mm-hmm. that would make me feel something deeply and it just seemed like well we, well that's sort of like we're appropriating somebody's term but then when i got over that and realized okay It can be this moment's emo. And I I, I felt pretty good about that. And then, strangely, Dan from Sunny Day was suddenly in our band. Yes. And that was a little validating in order to feel good about the word.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, I feel great about that word. I'm really proud of what we built with our fans Mm -hmm. and this thing that we share. And I use it without any caveat or asterisk. I feel very good about it.
2: There was a moment... And, you know, obviously the album is represented on the collection, but I think the time we probably were spending the most time together was between places and a mark mission and sort of build up to that record. And the cover story was about that record. And that was the record where I visited you and, you know, we we were still writing songs and.
1: Well, yeah, we were even like really in the thick, the muck and the mire of like, what do we do here? Like we suddenly have like, there's going to be a budget yes and we could have a, pr- a real producer and who should it be and everybody had opinions like the whole bandmate had opinions and we were trying to like learn how to communicate within a band all with their own like excitement for what could be with the record because it could but be it could it could be anything it, could have been but it anything, had to be something but it which is a
2: very right. strange precarious place and it's a place a lot of artists in any field uh, crumble is an unfair word but buckle and how, why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. And I remember, I mean, you're saying this, it's jogging my memory of a time after a show here, I think on that Weezer tour, like in Irvine or something, when Gil Norton came to meet with you about being a producer because you were at that stage where you could, like, look at your favorite records like a takeout menu. Yes. And be like, well, I love what he did with the Pixies. Yep. Maybe he's the guy, you know. And that's 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 heady and wild. And yet, yet I'm listening to the collection. And one of my favorite songs of your entire catalog is on there, Ghost of a Good Thing. And... It's such a beautiful and confident song. And that's what I'm really struck by again. And, and I'm sorry if I keep trying to sort of chip away at the thing that in retrospect I admired the most about the way you presented yourself at the time. But listening to it now, it sounds like someone who is ready for the opportunity because it's not a stadium banger. No. You know, you're not, it's not a radio play. It's a confident piece of songwriting from someone who is a songwriter you know what i mean and 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 it's aged very well because of it and i'm just glad to see it on the collection but again there there clearly was something and 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 if it's the same answers you gave before we can just go back to it and, and i got a few others but like something allowed you to stay the course and be true to that even during what and again if 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 you if i'm mischaracterizing the time but in my thoughts about it in my memory that was kind of the craziest maelstrom uh, the,
1: the, the debate of
2: of not just producer but like preparing for the record that was going to be the record. You know what I mean? Yes. That, like you had, done, you had done the things outside of everyone's notice. You had gotten the notice, and now all eyes were on it.
1: And Andy, it's funny that you pick out Ghost of a Good Thing because we went through the debate about who should produce it for specific reasons of like what we envisioned the record could be. Mm-hmm. We met with people whose records had moved us, people who made records that mm-hmm. just really moved us. I think we had different, we, the bandmates, the, the four of us, uh, had different parameters for what we were looking for in a producer. Mm-hmm. I think Mike was looking for someone that would be able to capture. Someone
2: who could mic the drums really well.
1: Yeah. I don't think there's <laughs> anything wrong with that. <laughs> no. But I think that as a drummer, he knew that that was an important factor in the record. Sure. And he is so right. But it it, it doesn't hold. The same weight for me in decision-making as mm-hmm. who will get the feeling across yeah. no matter what, even if we only had m- one mic in the whole building. Who can get that feeling across if there were, was only one mic?
2: Yeah, because I've heard Whenever. plenty, and we both have, I'm sure, heard many artists whom we admire hiding inside their new album.
1: Or yeah, and big inside this forward. brand production. Yeah, or,
2: or whatever is put on top of it I was wary
1: of, of that. I was wary Not of hiding, that. hiding,
2: getting lost. Hiding suggests they were trying to hide.
1: Right, but, yeah, that's a good point. Um, Mike was right everybody was right there's a part of me that wishes ha, has some longing to go back and be like well maybe if we gone Mike, Mike wanted to work with Jack Joseph Puig who we would, we would do stuff with in the future it was yeah. this great incredible experience he's a genius I wanted to work with Gil but I didn't want Mike to feel bad about working with Gil and if we ended up with Jack I didn't want to feel bad going working in with mm-hmm. Jack so we just had these long conversations where we were trying to be Really civil because I'd learned in my last band that in your passion, you can debate and understand and disagree, but understand somebody's reasoning unless you get bullheaded. And so we tried to be I don't know how good we were at this because we were still young, but we just were trying to be democratic, you know? And it was difficult for me because I felt like of all the people in the conversation, I think I actually knew like in my heart, more than other people knew in their heart by a minor degree. And I just decided I better trust that. Mm-hmm. And of course they, they did. Lo- I mean, who did, we- it's not like we went to somebody who'd never made a record. We went to, we went to Gil Norton, yeah. you know, who made Pixie's records and made uh, color in the shape for the yeah. two fighters, which I thought was this grand record. And, and, um, recovering the satellites by, by counting crows. So that's three very different records that have this rawness and this power. And this, 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 uh,
2: honesty and, and that defined those
1: bands in a lot of ways yes they absolutely did and i wanted our band to be defined
0: mm-hmm.
1: i hadn't realized it already had been mm. so if i'd waited a little while i could have maybe maybe i would have made a different decision but I, mm. I made the decision I made i love it love gill still love gill mm-hmm. but now i'm going to loop all the way back to ghost of a good thing so we we made the record with gill and it was still hard scrabble like our budget was still like rock bottom even though now we were going to be on this major label it was still a rock bottom budget. Mm-hmm. where like we were in a, a studio where like me being the skinniest guy i'm the one being shoved behind the desk the the, the console to plug stuff in that it hasn't been plugged in in 20 in 10 years the place had been closed for 10 years they like just opened it up because we couldn't afford the place next door which was the hit factory uh-huh and um yeah, you were in the cult hit factory that was next door. <laughs> It was, I don't know that any hits were ever made in that, <laughs> including for us. Oh, maybe Hands Down was yeah. made there. That's not a hit, but it moved the cultural needle, yeah. you know. That's been our, our lot in life. Like, we've never had a hit hit. But we've, we've had songs that move the cultural needle, and I'll take that. Which is something
2: day. that I think in some ways matters more and is appreciated more later,
1: yeah. you know. But Ghost of a Good Thing makes yeah. the record, and we recorded it with, with, with Gil. And this is where Gil comes in as like, oh, I picked the right guy. He petitioned, incredibly hard, and won that it should be my four track recording.
2: Yes, which which I had on a CDR. You yeah. gave me that, and am I missing? Yep. one other thing I remember from my from my little task scam. That, that you were recording out on that porch at your mom's house. Was it your mom's house or your your place? I it, don't was, it was it was my little apartment,
1: and it was my laundry room, which was in the patio, the like patio glassed in patio, and it was yeah. like a terrible place to record all tile and glass, mm-hmm. <laughs> and a, and you can. I won't say where, but you can, it didn't even occur to me, because who would think this would be on a record, but you can hear my shoes in the dryer and somewhere on that song.
2: Two comments. One, that's incredible that you say that, because it, not to turn this camera around, but in the pilot of Patch, the show I just made, we needed a sound, like an otherworldly sound for something that happens at the end of the pilot. And the sound designers were sending me stuff, and the editors were sending me stuff. And I said, no, no, I know what it is. I know what it is. Let me just think for a minute. Pause. And I said, it's a shoe in a dryer. Oh, amazing. And that's the sound. And that's now the sound of, like, my little company card is because that's my favorite sound. Oh, that's And it was, great. like, this haunting. But anyway, I also have to say, selfishly, again, that sitting on that patio with you after we went to, like, Guitar Center and bought synthesizers and drum machine, the song that we did together, I was pretty surprised it wasn't on your best of. You know, I, well, I, assume, I assume you're saving it for, like, Volume the, the, 2. Well, the career, like, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like the box set? Yeah, when it's all over. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the first track. Okay, good. I yeah. assume you still have it in a treasure Of course place. I have it. Okay, good.
1: We, uh, we had fun that day making music, right?
2: Yeah, I contributed nothing but enthusiasm, which, you know, that's all you need for a punk band, I guess.
1: That's definitely all you need yeah. for
2: a punk band. Yeah, <laughs> because I had, v- I can confirm I had nothing else. But it's a good song. Sad Robot Heart. Yep. I'll still ride for it. Anyway, what a
1: ridiculous name for it. It's so perfect because all it was was like blips and clicks yeah. and robot noises. Because that was
2: also, again, like this is something that in retrospect just seems so, wonderful and it was at the time too but it seems more rare now in retrospect which was at this time of high pressure at this time of you know even though we knew each other and got along it's a cover story blah 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 you were like f it let's go to guitar center and learn how to do something and make something and so that ethos was still present in a great way but now now we definitely have to finish the ghost of a good thing He put that four track recording on the record
1: yeah and that's so a credit to gill so if I had chose somebody else maybe they would have said well, yeah well, our let's do, it's not good enough like sonically it's not good enough it's done it's done poorly it's recorded yeah. poorly with inferior equipment but it was pure anyway. but it, but it was pure it was the feeling that he and I think we we I think we we did track it but it was like one take and he was like nope this is not going to be the thing yeah we're just leaving it at that and I was like, that can't be, I couldn't comprehend that. Mm-hmm. And I, I was pushed back hard and I kept at it. And he just stood his ground. It's going to be this version.
2: And it still is. And it is. So not to hit the fast forward button too much, but I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. The, You know, after um, Alter the Ending in 2009, you know, you were on a pretty traditional two, three year record, two, three year pace for records and, and obviously touring and everything else. You took a break from the moniker. Mm-hmm. You did not stop making music, obviously, but you did take a break from Dashboard and then came back. And, And you know, I, I was really excited to see from a distance um, artists as diverse as Taylor Swift and Julian Baker talking up your songs, talking about the role your songs played in their life. And, you know, that must have been obviously this entire conversation is suffused with surreality because of the experiences that you got to have. I have no question other than the trite. How, how did that feel for you? And how did that influence or ignite the decision to come back? Not that you left, but to make a new record under the moniker to be performing whole albums the way you are now?
1: I felt compelled the entirety of the time that we took off to make music again as Dashboard. Mm-hmm. But I needed it to be, I needed to be in, in, in a place that was, the, that was honest and true. And I think that the um, – my waning years with, with Jimmy, I lost the plot a little bit. Mm. Really specifically in Alter the Ending. See, Jimmy and his people, his, his team, they're incredible. I mean the people that he had around me are like like Luke Wood who was instrumental in, in um, Elliot Smith's career. I have huge respect for Luke.
2: I have his record as Sammy.
1: Yeah. I, oh yeah. I, I,
2: I knew I, I remember I met him at a Jimmy Eat World show and I was like, I love that Sammy record. Yeah. And and then he went on to AR and DreamWorks
1: and yeah. et cetera, And then et I think he's at Apple now too, you know? Yep. It's just wild. And others, you know, Jimmy, you know, they all kind of pushed me a little bit to find some more universality in my mm-hmm. lyrics, which either they said outright or or I just maybe and maybe it was wrong, but but I I discerned it to be that it had to be less personal, mm-hmm. less first person, mm-hmm. and the fans have really like made me love alter the ending somehow. But I I didn't love it at the time, like you know in the moment you're like so in it you you think they oh, yeah. they're saying it's good okay I think I think I've done it I think I've done what I think it's a good it's way. hard not to listen to other voices right. And especially if you just, like, really want to get better. There's only so many ways you can get better. You keep trying hard, keep trying Mm -hmm. hard. If you don't listen to anybody, you're never going to get better. Like, I listen to my guitar player because he's better than me. Mm -hmm. And then I glean the fluidity that he's playing with, and some of it seeps into my Mm playing. Just a small example. These are more direct directives. Sorry to be redundant. But to change some of these lyrics outright to be completely different or to change the eyes to use... Mm -hmm. um, I felt removed. It's so. I felt like I felt like pushed out of my own song. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear that
2: because going back to the point of all I had to bring was enthusiasm and a punk rock ethos at the time. You know, and this is twenty four years old writing about music, talking to you, talking to other people. Talent, true quote unquote true talent or gifts or skill. Not talent is the word skill, which is different, I think, and is something you can work on and get better at is ephemeral, I think, and you can't really understand it. Partly, I'll say, use I statements, because maybe at 24 I didn't want to work very hard. You know, <laughs> I wanted to, like, write about music because I love music. And there you go. And the idea that I would have to get better at writing or better at talking to people is separate. So in retrospect, to look back and say, well, one of the reasons that your songs connected is because you're a good songwriter. There are many other reasons, too. The moment, the context, how you were, you know, th- that moment of the internet spreading underground music to everyone who want who still wanted physical experiences before we graduated to the dystopia that we're all in today <laughs> all of that conspired to be part of it right but you're also a good songwriter and i think about it too looking back on like you know our friends in my chemical romance i'm like well gerard's a good songwriter and he's a good singer like of course sometimes it's not that complicated yeah anyway all of this is to say alter the ending which i think is a really good record it's a songwriter record you know and and, it, and it's interesting to hear you even use the word exercise now in retrospect because you were using that muscle and developing that muscle, but there's a particular spark that makes a
1: dashboard that you had to reconnect with. Yeah. And I'd lost it. Yeah. And that's when I said, it's time to... We did some touring after that, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, my touring career has always been built on, or my career has always been built on touring. Mm -hmm. This extensive, long tours of of, of many, many dates throughout the year, more than the average, for for sure. And... I think we were beat up a little bit from making that record and then we were beat up from the tours and we were beat up from the, the many years of touring up to that point. And I remember like having a discussion, you know, it, I believe it was me and Johnny. And it was like, we aren't burnt out yet, but it's coming. You could feel it. And um, in having no hits on the radio, you know, like inarguable hits that will be played in supermarkets 20 years from now, We don't have that. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Because what we got was great also. You know, like, it's another thing. I would argue that it's something I enjoy better. Mm -hmm. It isn't better. Because by the metric of like, well, this is a more successful song. (laughs) Obviously, that's better. But for my personal— The supermarket royalties are no joke. Yeah, they're no joke, man. You get the produce aisle. Oh, my God. That's the brass ring produce aisle. You're eating for life. Shoo! And And you're not just eating vegetables. No, man whatever you could have the world is your oyster Mm -hmm. you could even get oysters so we know that what we do have is this uh tacit agreement with our audience that 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 we will deliver with full-hearted honesty and Mm -hmm. commitment and energy you can't do that when you're burnt out and so i thought if they see us trying to do it i suppose it's just being in it yeah it's over and I said, we can't do that. We have to just like step away, and we'll come back. Oh, if it's if it'll be a one and done, well, that'll be our last tour ever. The, the audience yeah. will go, that was a beautiful ride, yeah, and it's over now.
2: It's fascinating to talk to you about this because I think, again, this is all in hindsight and in retrospect, but it seems like the most challenging relationship with maybe all artists, but I think from my vantage point, um, pop artists, popular music, whatever we want to call it is the relationship between the artist and his or her own image or career. You know, um, I think it it takes a lot of perspective and humility to not just know or acknowledge something that makes you or he or she, in this case, special, but to have an active relationship with it and respect it. You know what I mean? So when you're talking about understanding that a certain level of intensity, a certain level of personal emotion, a certain connection with the audience— those aren't the chains that are binding you from other parts of happiness in your life that kind of defines this. And you also have other things, you know, whether it's other bands, other songwriting or life and family and hobbies like mountain climbing, (laughs) being very modest about, but, but, but but you know what I mean? But embracing that and understanding it and not running from it. And, you know, it's right there in the title of the record we're talking about, that it's a mark and a mission and a brand and a scar all at once. But, It all seems like a very healthy perspective, basically, because I I think that during the years when you were the, oh, he's the guy who bears his heart and everyone sings along with him. I mean, I've never been that guy or even on that level of it, but I can already feel hackles rising. Like, don't put me in a box, man. Like, I'm not that. I'm a lot of other things, too. And yet you seem to find joy in it and have a healthy relationship with it.
1: I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I respect that audience. Who am I to say they're wrong? Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to be person who, whose songs they want to listen to mm-hmm. when they need to feel something, whatever that something is. Coming back was glorious because we had it again. We had this intense connection with this, each song, with the audience, with what each song could be now, which is a very different thing from mm-hmm. what it was then. Although sometimes, every now and again, it's like a time machine. Yeah. And it's the thing you wrote about. It's red hair, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and is it, is it everywhere? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> well, I don't know anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest. I can only imagine. Yeah. And at a certain point, it'll be gray hair. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think it's important now to understand that I there's, there's two different things that I love. Making records and touring. hmm And I know you have to do one to do the other. Mm-hmm. But there's a point in the future where I think that people won't really need new songs for me. They'll have so many that mean something to them that there's almost like no room to get to them. Mm-hmm. And I'll still have to make that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'll have to make new music. And it's kind of analogous to, if I were still a teacher, I would be just I would be up late at night writing songs and recording them in, in my laundry room. So it's a different uh position in life but it's still kind of the same mindset
2: also you know extending the metaphor if you were a teacher you would be growing and changing and the students would be evolving over time of course in the era but the lessons would still be the same that you have to teach right that's right and you'd have to get up and do go to class and teach someone i'm, I, I'm gonna riff on pretending you're a math teacher but i certainly is, was not i a know math but i just thought you know <laughs> uh in the fullness of time maybe you know the two <laughs> plus two is still four come. yeah <laughs> um Off only but again, I think that's an interesting distinction. And I think it's the kind of thing that is very healthy both for a human in the world, but also for a career in, in a field that in some ways has only grown more precarious, right? I mean, it's you, tricky. You, you were talking about 20 years ago being so uncertain, and I had a real job because, you know, magazines, that was a rock-solid place to work. <laughs> <laughs> Music magazines especially. Yeah. Um, but what was interesting about your moment— and I and this is a moment that I think extended right up to like Fall Out Boy and MCR and then kind of fell off a cliff, was there was a system. There was an industry. There was a machinery. And it was old, creaky machinery as we now realize. But it was there to be availed of, right? Like even certain things that, you know, now seem like exciting outliers, but like getting the single on the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack. Yeah. Those are words that when it happened, it would be hard to imagine – more impactful words strung together in a sentence, right?
1: Especially for me. Yeah. I mean, just that so specific. Exciting. If you know me and you do, you yeah. know that I'm like a real comic book nerd. That was amazing. It so was an amazing. But thing. now the idea of like, oh, well, the
2: next step in this extending staircase is a single on a movie soundtrack and the video will premiere. I mean, just all the language we use is gone. Yeah. It's even more. Pre- all this was to say that it's what a confusing industry it is now. And uh probably more so than at any point,
1: yeah, it's all moving targets, and so all you can do is play and play and play in front of people until you find your people mm-hmm. to f- until you find the people that need you mm-hmm. and you realize how much they need you need them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's people that have like hundreds of millions of plays on streaming services that that probably couldn't sell out a coffee shop and then conversely there's bands that have 100,000 that are just just crushing Mm -hmm. so and that's because the paradigm shift has been grand but those artists that have a have a longing a need to connect more so than just write a great song which Mm -hmm. i respect but just a need to connect Mm -hmm. if they get lucky and they find that i think that's kind of like better than a gold record it's more exist, sustaining i and, think anymore
2: we should wrap up in a moment but I, I did want to ask who at this moment who do you hear yourself in and, and and i realize i'm framing it in a very presumptuous way i you can rephrase that any way you want because i know knowing you you're not going to say oh this person's clearly influenced by my masterworks well i
1: can say but, I, I can say a lead with like people who've said so okay. so i know I, about that you know taylor swift has has been pretty vocal about it in case i'm in the country yeah. Music Hall of Fame right now f- as on a wall for Casey Musgrave's Amazing. biggest influences, which is just very surreal to me, is love as incredible as Casey is, and she's my homegirl, but but still like she put me up on that wall, yeah. you know. And uh, and Julian has you know, as you said, has kind of put my name up there as as somebody that's been important to her. I think Phoebe as Bridgers as well. Just, and Phoebe which is just like, it's all, it's all really incredible. It's a, it's a really incredible feeling to know this. And then I was with Dave from Gang of Youths and, and, um, and I wouldn't have heard it until we talked mm-hmm. at length. You know, we've become very good friends. but um, and, he, and he explained to me how big my influence was on him. Without, you know, like blowing me up. Yeah. Just like very casually. And now I can hear it in the songs. And all it is is like we like to, to pull from the same palette mm-hmm. of color. And then, you know, Matty from 1975 has been just absolutely, like, he'll come to my smallest show and play with me. Wow. You know, and uh, this guy's a superstar. Mm-hmm. But he loves what he loves. And he's really vocal about it. So it's surprising. It's surprising to see that it's, like, I just named several different genres. And this is what and I love that's about it. the part it. that really blows my mind. Yeah. Because I think I do something narrow. Like, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's my lane. Yeah. So how it's affected people in these very different lanes. Disparate from each other too. I think it's, it's so a,
2: important, and I can imagine it must be validating in a way that you aren't, you know, aren't even comfortable saying because when you're in a moment, and you know, and you've talked with great, even just now with, with me, you've talked with great perspective on the moment that you were cast into and a part of. It can be dismissed as part of a moment too, mm-hmm. you know. And we talked about this in many interviews how sometimes what you were doing wasn't cool, you know, and it was, and but being. Young and having big, big, big feelings is inherently not cool, no, and coolness is death, you know, in everything, and chasing it certainly above everything else and I find it gratifying just as a fan and as someone who's known you for a long time, that the people who you named, people who are making music now, are younger than us, and found something that inspired them when they weren't cool and stayed true to that and. Guess what? Stay in school, kids. That's the coolest thing of all. <laughs> I just realized I was steering dangerously close to PSA territory, and we don't need to do that. But it's noteworthy. It's, it's just, it's really neat to be able to, to, to track that.
1: I wouldn't have expected this it, when we were first getting to know each other, but it's pretty incredible. Because they're chasing their own muses, and they're doing sure. very, very different things. Oh, yeah. And they've moved beyond the things, the way that I influence them, they've mm-hmm. moved beyond it, and now influence me.
2: Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. We should probably end there. I mean, we just ended on the circle of life. That's it. What more do you want? How great to talk to you again. It's the best. So should we? Should we plug anything else? How long are you going to be touring this this record? And I don't know. Forever. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Chris is coming to your town one way or another. Every day. <laughs> Thanks, buddy.
0: Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Zorro.com, shopping for a business. You'll find supplies that you need at Zorro.com. That's Z-O-R-O.com at Zoro, You can get tools, safety and office items, cleaning supplies, and more just in one stop. And Zoro has great brands like Milwaukee Tool, Prestone, 3M, and Proto. Visit Zorro.com, Z-O-R-O.com slash watch and sign up for Zmail to get 15% off. Zorro.com, all you need to make your business go.